This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Well, if you're excited about studying God's Word together today, turn to John chapter 6. As someone who is a pastor and a preacher and has not preached for four weeks, I'm excited about studying God's Word together with you today. So thankful for the men who have taught over the last four weeks, and uh, it has served a couple of different purposes. One, it has allowed you to hear from some different voices, which is a good thing for you as a congregation. And it's also been a good thing for me to simply to be able to kind of rest and refocus going into a new, a new school year. This week is a, is a good transitional week for many of us in this room. It's time for school to start again, right? And so there is excitement in the room, and there is great hesitancy in the room, and most of that's from the teachers in the room. <laughs> All kidding aside, there's a lot of preparation that takes place for the beginning of a school year. We buy new clothes. Uh, we have to buy school supplies. Um, we have to get finances in order because there are things that we're about to have to pay for, especially as families or even as students. There are a lot of preparations that take place to go into a new school year. But here at Mill City Church, there are also preparations that we go through because so much of our mission and strategy is to focus our attention on reaching the next generation, especially students at UML and young adults in our area. There are preparations that we make. Uh, we just got back from a leadership retreat this weekend with uh, 24 student leaders, and we're excited about what God's going to use them to do on their campus this fall in making disciples of students at UMass Lowell. But I also want us to think about our hearts and, prep and preparing our hearts. And I want you to know that God has been doing some things in my heart He's been illuminating his scriptures to me this summer. He's been poking and prodding at my heart. And what am I putting my hopes in? What, am I, what are my insecurities? What are my securities? Are they good securities? Are they false securities? He's even been engaging my heart with just my own spiritual disciplines and how I'm pursuing him and, and how am, am I being satisfied by him. And I want to remind us today as we start this transition and going into a new school year, I want, to ask, I want to remind us of something and ask us some questions. I want to remind us that we are here on a mission. That here at Mill City Church, we love people. And I really believe that if you are a part of our faith family, I believe that you will have so many of your relational needs met. You'll have tangible needs met. I really believe that there are even felt needs that you will experience in this faith family because of the people who are here and the provision that God has given to us. But I'm going to say something that may surprise you. The heart of our mission is not simply to meet human need. Because if that was the whole heart of our mission, then our mission would be very man-centered. The whole heart of our mission is to advance the kingdom, to build the kingdom, to grow the kingdom of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and to do that through gospel proclamation and disciple-making here locally in this place and around the globe. And so I want you to know that Mill City Church does not exist as a place where just spiritual stamina happens 
And we're just here to be a place that just meets needs. We are here to be a place that meets human needs and grows people to see your part, my part, our part in advancing a mission and living for something so much greater than any one of us alone. I want to remind you of that mission, that we are a group of people on a mission. But I also want to remind you today that we do not do this mission through our own power, through our own efforts, as if this is all left up to us. The growth that we have experienced as a church, the life and vitality that we have experienced as a faith family over the last couple of years, this is not the result of human ingenuity on my part or any other leader in this church. If any growth has happened, if any movement has happened, and if it will continue, it will be because there is a driving force and there is a food and there is a sustenance that makes that happen. And so this morning, not only do I want to remind us of the mission to which God has called us, I also want us to remi- want to remind you that God has not only commanded us to be on this mission, but he himself gives us the food and the fuel to empower us in that mission. And the ultimate food, the ultimate fuel that's going to fuel us is none other than our Savior, the person of Jesus Christ himself. That's our reminder today. And as we dive into John 6, we're going to look at one of the lengthier passages that Jesus gives us, one of the lengthier episodes that we see of Jesus' teaching And we're not going to be able to exhaust this passage because it is fairly long for simply a 40, 45-minute message time on a Sunday morning. But we're going to try and be faithful to the text this morning and to see what Jesus would teach us about himself, but also to probe our hearts and ask some questions from Jesus implied in this text as we continue on mission here as a church to see where we are today and what we are feeding on. In the pages of Scripture, Jesus gives us the ultimate show and tell. What Jesus does is he shows us his deity. He shows us his greatness by the works, the miracles he performs. But then he tells us about his deity through the outstanding claims that he makes of himself and the radical things he calls us, his followers, to be a part of. And so what I'm going to do this morning is a little bit different than how I would normally go through a passage. Instead of reading this entire passage, which is very lengthy, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask some questions this morning, and then we're going to go to a a paragraph of this uh, section of Scripture, and then we'll just keep making our way through this until we get towards the end. And so we want to do some diagnosis this morning. And so by doing that, I'm going to ask you four questions in order to help you diagnose the spiritual state of your heart. And then I'm going to look at two radical claims, even outrageous claims, juxtaposed against those of the world. And then we're going to ask one more question in response to see what Jesus would do in our hearts and our lives today. Here's question number one. Are we coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons? And I want that question to sit with you 
Are you coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons this morning? The day before this episode, Jesus had fed 5,000 men and plus many other women and children. So we're going to say that Jesus fed thousands of people through a miraculous act. It's one of his most memorable miracles that he performed on planet Earth. He had simply a few fish and a few loaves and he fed half the city. And people were astounded by this. People were also very much awakened to this because Jesus in this moment performed a huge miracle of public welfare. Jesus has opened up a buffet line because the scriptures tell us that the people ate until they were satisfied. And so as Jesus opened up a first century golden corral, the people were mesmerized by this. And overnight, he sends the disciples on and the disciples encounter a horrible storm where they then watch Jesus walk on water and calm the sea with a simple word. Now Jesus and his disciples are going to Capernaum where he gives this long discourse to a group of religious people in the synagogue. And these people had witnessed and experienced the feeding of thousands and they wanted more of where this type of religiosity had come from. But here's what I want to do. Read this. Follow along with me in this paragraph beginning in verse 22. And we're going to start seeing the misdirection of these people's hearts. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They want more. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They just so happened to put themselves in the place where they could cross Jesus' path again. Well, wow, if he gave this yesterday, what's he going to be handing out today? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. You see, these people weren't looking for spiritual salvation. They weren't looking for satisfaction of their souls. And they had no intentions of worshiping Jesus for who he is. They wanted their bellies filled. They wanted more handouts. They wanted what he would give to them. But that's not his ultimate purpose for coming to planet Earth. Jesus came to be Savior of the world. Moreover, he came to bring people ultimate satisfaction. As Merrill Tenney wrote, he, Jesus desired that men should receive him, not simply for what he might give to them, but for what he might be to them. Today, in the 21st century, we start learning that 21st century hearts are not all that different from 1st century hearts. People today come to Jesus for a myriad of reasons. To have their consciences clean. Some to get rich. Some to be healed. Some to have 
basic provisions. Others to look good to other people or to clean themselves up. But what Jesus teaches us here by exposing the sin and the misdirection of these first century hearts, he illuminates the 21st century hearts that if we're not humbly, if we're not humbly coming to Jesus for salvation and satisfaction of our souls, we're coming to him for the wrong reasons. So diagnose your heart this morning. Are you coming to Jesus for the wrong reasons? Question number two I would ask you this morning. Are we trusting in the wrong means to save us? Are we trusting in the wrong means to save us? And this is an important question for us today. This is an important question for those who have been a part of the church for years. This is very important for the person who may be here this morning as a seeker. And you've been invited by a friend and you're just investigating this thing called Christianity and investigating this person named Jesus to ask yourself the question, are you trusting in the wrong means to save you? When you go on in the passage beginning in verse 28, this was the response of Jesus after he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You see, the people completely misunderstand the metaphor. They ask the question, oh, labor, work, what works must we do to be doing the things of God? And what Jesus' response shows us is that Jesus is seeking to give a grace gift, a free gift. And the people's first reaction is, what do I have to do to earn it? Jesus uses their language work to point towards the answer. And his answer is actually no work at all. It's belief. It's faith. Do you believe that I am who I say I am? Do you believe that I am the one sent from heaven? Do you believe that I am the Messiah? Do you believe that I am the one who is going to live the perfect life that God requires you to live? Are you going to believe that I am going to die the punishing death that you should die because of your sin? And are you going to believe that ultimately I will be raised on the third day in order to give new life to all who would put their trust in me? John actually uses some form of the word belief 100 times in his gospel. Belief, believe, believed, believer. Might there be a theme in John's gospel? John so passionately wants you to read the text of Scripture and to come away believing that Jesus was who he said he was and that Jesus gives what he says that he gives and that Jesus offers what Jesus says that he offers. And so using a play on words, Jesus says that the work God is looking for is belief, faith, surrender. Identifying everything you are with everything that he is. What are you trusting in this morning to save you? You see, as we continue our mission of making disciples locally and making disciples globally, it's crucial that we know what we're offering. 
It's crucial that we know the gospel we are proclaiming. And it's very difficult to proclaim a gospel to a lost and dying world who is putting their trust in something that's not ultimately going to save them if you and I, if we are putting our trust in something that won't actually save us. What are you trusting in this morning to save you? Is it your good works? Is it the riches that you are giving away? Is it your earthly morality? Is it your membership in some rotary club or some membership in a local church? Your good looks? Your abilities? Your church attendance? Maybe even your family heritage? What is it you're placing your trust in? Because if you're not putting your trust in Jesus Christ and Him crucified alone, you're trusting in the wrong means to save you. Third question, are we dictating our own terms of belief? Are we dictating our own terms of belief? As you read on in the text, beginning in verse 30, so they said to Him, then, then what sign do you do? That we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. It's clear from the reading of this paragraph that the people still weren't buying what Jesus was trying to sell them. Believe in you? Okay, fine. Well, do something to prove you're worthy to believe in. Hey, you know that feeding thousands of people thing yesterday? I tell you what, you give us all pantries full of groceries today and we'll believe in you. Hey, Jesus, you remember that manna from heaven thing that was done to Moses and the people of God hundreds of years ago? Do you remember that? Hey, I tell you what, you did something greater than that and we'll believe in you. Do something really cool, like turn my horse into a unicorn, right? Or how about turn my greatest enemy into an ogre? That would really jazz me. If you can do that, then I'll believe in you. Jesus, can you do what Moses did? Can you do what was done to Moses? Do something like that. We'll believe. Now, it's tempting. We could read this account. And the audacious nature of the people's request is very clear. But people around us do the exact same thing today. Well, if God is truly who he says he is, and if God truly is the miracle worker, and Jesus truly is the Messiah, then why don't I see miracles today? God, you rain down fire from heaven today. I'll believe in you. You pick up Mount Washington and move it to Vermont, and I'll believe in you today. Like We're, we're dictating our own terms of belief, aren't we? And see, so we can be tempted to think, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I don't do that. But even as Christians, we can do this. 
we make these false promises to God. We say things like, God, if, if you'll just help my children be more well-behaved, then I will fill in the blank. God, if you could just get my kids back in church, then I would blank. God, if you would just heal my mother, it would be enough for me. And brothers and sisters, as real as any of those issues may be, we cannot put a, a hat of functional unbelief back on and dictate our own terms of faith to the one who has created us and the one who has done everything for us. Who is the Messiah and who is the follower? Who is God and who is not? Will what has been created dictate their terms to the Creator? This is what the people were doing. And Jesus is constantly redirecting their focus. And what I want to do this morning is at least be a voice of helping us in this room redirect our focus and guard ourselves from dictating our own terms of belief. Question four. Are we reasoning Jesus away with human logic? Are we reasoning Jesus away with human logic? You might be a skeptic in this room today. And you may be here out of a sense of duty and friendship towards the person who invited you. And even as you're listening to these verses, you might be trying to reconcile in your mind what Jesus is saying versus what you know to be true. And you could be tempted to reason the, you could be tempted to reason the Messiah away just as these first century people did. Now, what happens now, we're going we're gonna to come back to this passage in just a minute. But in verse 35, Jesus responds to them because they're saying, give us this bread always. We don't want to go to Jerusalem's grocery store anymore. We're tired of going to Market Basket. We're tired of buying food. Give us this food always. But Jesus is not talking about physical food. He's talking about spiritual food and ultimate satisfaction. And so his response in verse 35 is, I am the bread of life. I am the true bread that you're longing for. I am the true sustenance of your soul. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so when the people heard, I am the bread of life, ego I may, that is hearkening back to Exodus chapter 3, when God himself revealed himself to Moses as the great I am. Am. It's the same language in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so the first century hearers would have heard Jesus at that moment liken himself, equate himself to Jehovah God. So I want you to fast forward down to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So after making an astounding truth claim about himself and equating himself to God the Father, Jesus now listens to these people continually demonstrate their stubborn hearts and their lack of understanding. And they begin to reason him away by reducing him down to a mere man. You see, this has been the strategy of human beings ever since Jesus walked the earth. 
Because you see, if we can disregard his deity, if we can make Jesus less than who he is, now we may call him a great teacher, we may call him a, a, a good philosopher or a really good moral example, we're good with that. But the moment that we say that Jesus is God in the flesh, then that gives another authority and another layer of absolute authority of him over our lives. And so if we can reason him away, if we can make him less than who he is, then we can marginalize his teachings and we can disregard him as just another religious eccentric who has come up with some hypothesis about how to find our way to God. 2,000 years of history has not changed the core of the human heart because this is the exact type of reductionism that happens in 21st century culture as well. If we can just make him a moral teacher, he's just like every other religious leader. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he doesn't say that he's simply a, more, a good moral teacher. He came professing himself as God Almighty in the flesh. See, as long as Jesus is just one of us, then we can disregard him like we do any other religious leader. And so this morning, are you reasoning Jesus away with human logic? Those are four questions this morning that I hope will help diagnose the spiritual state of your hearts. Now, I want to go to a more positive direction and give us two truths to now challenge our assumptions about life on earth. Here are our assumptions. Our assumptions include the fact that life is good. Being in pla on planet earth is a good experience. Even with all the bad that happens, there's a lot of good that happens here. And what our assumption is, is that this is the best that it gets. <laughs> on a nice sunny day, when it's 70 degrees outside, and the kids are behaving, and the grades are up in school, and everything is going my way, this is as best as human experience will ever get. That's our assumption. And so we just assume that this is it. But Jesus is going to challenge our assumptions. Because what our assumptions do, they lead us to some very unhealthy places. And what it does is it makes us take the good things God has given us and make them ultimate things, thinking that there's somehow we can be ultimately satisfied by the things on planet Earth. But here are two truths to, ta to challenge those assumptions. Number one, everything on Earth will always leave us wanting we can infer from this metaphor of Jesus that more than just bread is at play here. He's not just talking about physical bread. He's not just talking about meals, being, uh, having your hunger satisfied. It's more than that. It's talking about deep-seated satisfaction. How do we know this? Because when you look at verse 27, Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life. If you look at verse 49, he says again, I am the bread of life. In verse 48, verse 49, your fathers ate the manna back in the wilderness and they died. 
So it's not about physical food. He says the same thing in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Me, Jesus, that's what he's saying. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Jesus is pointing our attention to spiritual reality here. Earthly bread will not really satisfy you. It's why you're always hungry again. Even if you have the best meal of your life in about an hour from now, by six-ish, you're going to want to eat again. And what he's doing is he's pointing our attention that no matter how good experiences may be on planet Earth and how good the good gifts of God are, they will ultimately leave you wanting. Every one of them. That's the heart of Jesus' metaphor here. How he takes material things like food and points us towards spiritual realities. The picture he's painting is that nothing on earth ultimately satisfies. You may eat three meals today, but you're going to be hungry again tomorrow. You might achieve a goal, but you'll quickly set a new one. You could get the promotion at work you've been waiting months for, but then you're overwhelmed by the responsibilities and wonder if you even made a mistake in taking it. You could have sex with your spouse every night this week, but then you're still tempted to want someone else. And you finally, finally, finally get a girlfriend or a boyfriend. But then you find out that it's not what you thought it was going to be. Everything. Brothers and sisters, mark this down. Everything. Every good thing on earth will always leave you wanting something more. And that's the ultimate message of Jesus in this passage. But there is a second truth that is far more positive than this one and is where Jesus wants your attention to go to this morning is that yes, everything on earth will always leave you wanting more, but everything in Jesus will always make us satisfied. Everything in Jesus will always make us satisfied. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. When he says that, he's pointing to us, pointing us towards a reality that in Jesus, we have found something that is complete. We have found someone who is perfect. We have found someone who will satisfy us like no other person will. Working in his kingdom will satisfy us greater than the perfect job on planet earth. Feasting at his banquet table through the spiritual disciplines will leave us satisfied more than any form of recreation we may choose on earth. And partnering with his people for his mission will satisfy us through that labor more than any other thing on earth we will labor for. I love the picture that Jesus gives us here. And he does this throughout the Gospels, taking physical, temporal things and pointing us towards the eternal. He has built into us internal mechanisms to point us towards spiritual things. By choosing this terminology, I am the bread of life. I want you to think about this. This will change the way you even approach hunger on any given day. Brothers and sisters, every time you experience hunger pains, 
Every time you get one of those headaches because you're running low on potassium and you need to be filled, you need some protein, you need something to take this away. Every time your physical body experiences that, it is God's internal service engine light to remind you that there is nothing on this earth that will ultimately satisfy you, but that Jesus Christ is the ultimate satisfaction of your soul. Because he himself is the bread of life. This is why, for those of you in the room who are Christians and have been Christians for a long time, you know how you go days sometimes without having a good time in prayer and, and feeding on the word, what we call a quiet time or a devotional? You know how like when, you're, when your life is just empty from those things and you're just so hurried you haven't had good time with Jesus? You know that little gnawing feeling you get in your heart? Wait, am I the only one that experiences that? You know that feeling? It's the internal mechanism that God has wired inside of you. It's the service engine light. That you were wired for something, someone, that this world will not offer you. It's why Augustine, the 4th century bishop in the early church, famously wrote, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. It's why Blaise Pascal, the 17th century scientist and philosopher, said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. C.S. Lewis, the 20th century Christian philosopher, wrote, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And what this passage would teach us is that you were made for another person. The psalmist David in Psalm 1611 summed this same principle up by writing, You, God, make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Can I just ask you a question? Just my heart to yours this morning. Do you long for just fullness of joy? Do you long for that? Even in the midst of all of your good relationships and good things that you experience on planet Earth, don't you long for just fullness of joy that is fixed, whether we're on top of the world, on the top of the mountain, or at the lowest point in the valley? Are you longing for that? The psalmist David says it exists, and Jesus reveals himself as that joy, as that satisfaction. Jesus quenches our thirst and satisfies our spiritual hunger like nothing else can. So those are two truths to meet our assumptions this morning in response to our questions of diagnosis. And so now I want to ask in closing one question to invite us to respond. And it's simply this. As we start a new school year, as we continue to participate in God's mission, living for something greater than any one of us individually, are we feasting on Jesus through authentic faith? Are we feasting on Jesus 
through authentic faith. Now, I want you to go down to verse 52, which is, I'm just going to be honest with you, it's kind of weird. In verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Does anybody else have a problem with that? I mean, what kind of vampire zombie talk is this from the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? What's up with this, Jesus? So before we somehow think that Jesus has gone all twilight on us, we need to understand what he is communicating and what he is not communicating. Friends, let me just state the obvious here. Jesus is not calling us all to be vampires, all right? That's not the message of this text, nor zombies. You pick your genre, okay? That's not what Jesus is doing. And I also want you to know that he's not speaking about communion, And this is one of the places where I just respectfully disagree with my Catholic friends, my Catholic brothers and sisters. He's not talking about communion here, the Eucharist. For this discourse is long before he ever instituted the Lord's Supper. And moreover, if that is what he meant, that would mean that a person can be a Christian and could be ultimately satisfied by simply taking communion regularly. That would be a false gospel. But he's definitely saying something really radical. Now, how do we know that? Because after Jesus gives this instruction, look at verse 60. Look at what the disciples do. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? And going on, you're going to see that there are many kind of uh, softened disciples are going to desert and leave Jesus at this moment. I remember David Platt saying about this passage, like, this is not a really good church growth method, right? Jesus, you can't tell people that you have to eat them in order to be right with God, right? So people start leaving. So this is definitely radical. What Jesus is doing here is he's imploring a Hebrew idiom. And that Hebrew idiom is flesh and blood. We have idioms. Like, for example, we say things like when someone's going on stage, break a leg. We don't mean literally go up there and have someone kick your shin, right? That's not what that means. And we say things like don't beat around the bush, which means basically just tell me what you want to tell me. We don't go take a stick and go and beat uh, objects of horticulture outside, right? It's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. And that's what Jesus is employing here is a first century idiom, a first century figure of speech. Flesh and blood referred to the whole person. 
their entire being. And by employing this language, what Jesus is teaching us is that he is not looking for shallow belief. He's not looking for empty believism. He's not calling you to simply intellectually believe that he existed or to feel good about some of his teaching. And as we've already seen, he's not asking you to perform the right religious works in order to be approved by God. He's ultimately asking you to examine his claims, compare them against his works, see what he's done, hear what he's taught, and in the depths of your heart, believe in his whole person, his whole being, with your whole heart, and that Jesus is not just a compartmental thing that you experience on Sunday mornings or Wednesday night small group, but he becomes the comprehensive devotion of your life. That he's the one who will ultimately satisfy your deepest longing, both today and tomorrow, now and forevermore. He's the one by whom, through whom, and for whom you exist and live. So are you feasting on Jesus today through authentic faith? As a closing thought, I want you to think about the food that we eat. In just a moment, most of us in this room are either going to go home or we're going to go to a restaurant and we're going to eat lunch. And thank God that we live in a country that has something called the FDA and the USDA. Because we have these governmental institutions we can be pretty assured that wherever we go to eat, that that restaurant has met the safety inspections, that it's a safe place in which to prepare food and serve it to men, women, and children. And because of the USDA and because of the strict standards that our country has for agriculture, <clears throat> for meat, we can be pretty much assured that whatever we go to Market Basket or Hannaford's today and buy from the grocery store and we take home to prepare, we don't really go with any fear that that meat is tainted or those vegetables are rotten or diseased or infested. We're very thankful for that, living in a country like the United States of America. And even common sense tells us that if we see someone on the side of the road and, and it's a hot summer day and they're trying to fry eggs on the sidewalk in the middle of dirt and grime, that we're not going to give them $3 for a scrambled egg platter, right? Because common sense tells us that there are safe places where we prepare food and there are, there are right types of fruit, food which we put in our bodies. I want us to think about something this morning. If we take such care with the food that we eat and we partake of for physical sustenance on earth, is not what Jesus is teaching us this morning is that we should take even greater pains and greater concerns with what we eat spiritually, what we consume spiritually, what we feast on, what we believe, what we hope in, and this is one of the things where we have to recognize as 21st century believers, even human beings, 
that in a world that is characterized by pluralism and relativism and choose your own spiritual adventure and go to the buffet of religious ideas and just make up your own religion, that Jesus would say, be careful what you eat. Be careful what you consume. Because everything that's out there that's edible is not actually, will that actually give you nourishment and sustenance in your spiritual life. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of things that could actually kill you spiritually. And so this morning, as we begin this new year, as we begin thinking about how we would make disciples on our campuses and in our city and our neighborhoods, no food for the mission. And our food for the mission is none other than Jesus himself. And I just want to implore you this morning. It's very tempting to come in, come out, check in, check out, and never really grapple with your heart. Never really grapple with the things that Jesus teaches us. I'm convinced that in a room this size, there could be someone or someones out there who you're trusting in the wrong means of salvation. You're reasoning Jesus away with human logic. You could be completely missing the metaphors of Jesus. But as we've seen the truths that we've looked at today, could I encourage you that wherever you are spiritually, would you be willing to take a hard step today to say, God is doing something in my heart. I don't know what it all means, but would you walk alongside of me and help me with that? I promise you that there are men and women in our faith family who would love to help answer those questions and to point you towards Jesus. And so right now, our worship team is going to come back. They're going to come back up, and they're going to lead us in a time of response. And this is an opportunity where, yes, we can sing, but we can also sit and be introspective and pray and reflect. But regardless of what God is doing in your hearts today, be obedient and listen and respond. Don't walk out not engaging the heart of Jesus or allowing him to engage yours. Father, thank you for teaching us through your word today. Thank you for pointing our attention away from the things that don't satisfy us, but showing us yourself and showing us what ultimate satisfaction is. Father, I pray for every man, every woman, every child in this room this morning. Would you make yourself known to every heart in every circumstance and meet them where they are? And I pray, Father, that they would taste and see your grace. And I pray that once they taste and once they see, they have no choice but to run towards you, fall down at your banquet table, and just feast. And may all these things be reality today in Jesus' name. Amen.